Hey guys, it's Matilda Pearl. We've lost too many lives on our roads this year through risks that weren't worth taking. So I've teamed up with the TAC and other artists to use live music as a way of highlighting that life without your mates is as quiet as music without a band. So take extra care out there and let's keep the band together. What do we want? In the very first episode of Always Live, we pondered the question, why do Victorians care so much about live music that they literally took to the streets? In 1980, Melburnians were marching in the KISS army. A few decades later, they were back on the streets, and this time around, it was a little more serious. They were saving live music. Music's not the disease, it's the cure. So, how did it come to this? More than 20,000 people on the streets of Melbourne, the largest cultural protest in Australian history. Well, it all began with a cracking little music venue called The Tote. Uh, look, you've heard all the speeches. I don't think the tote can be saved, but I do think live music in, in Melbourne can not only be saved, but can thrive because, because of what's going on. I'm Alex Leahy, and this is one of the greatest stories in the history of live music. This is the story of the Slam Rally. It all started on an otherwise quiet summer's day in January 2010. Victorian music fans were awoken from their summer slumber with news that one of their favourite venues, The Tote in Collingwood, was closing. Ah, The Tote. A colourful Melbourne institution surrounded by myth and mystery. Mystery, mystery. The Tote, you know, apparently it's got secret tunnels underneath and John Wren used to, uh, the bookmaker, used to basically sneak out through there. So the story goes that when the cops used to raid the pub, the bookies would slip out via tunnels in the cellar, which led to shops across the road. It's a wild story that Frank Hardy fictionalised in his epic Aussie novel, Power Without Glory. Yep, there's a lot of history at this place, which was known as the Ivanhoe Hotel until it became a music venue in the 1980s. The Totes hosted some legendary gigs over the years. One of those happened towards the end of 1990, when pioneering American grunge band Mudhoney toured Australia. The tour was going well, until the band's hotel room was robbed and someone made off with all their cash, leaving Mudhoney stranded in Australia. The totes stepped in and organised a benefit show so the band could get home in time for Christmas. It was a crazy gig. Mudhoney did a set of covers by Devo, the Damned, and The Scientist, trashed the stage, and then returned to play a few of their own songs. 
audience members got up on stage and played with the band, singer Mark Arm did a reading from a local fanzine called Shit Feast, and they even raffled a frozen chook. We got a little chook raffle. The chook raffle. Hey, cut that echo shit out. We need all that quiet as we uh, grab the winning tickets. As they say, you had to be there. But there's some footage of the gig on YouTube if you want to check it out. The Tote is also where Dave Faulkner and the Hoodoo Gurus launched themselves in Melbourne after they came to town to support a singing dog. Yep, you heard right, a singing dog. Our first venue we played in Melbourne in Hoodoo Gurus was at the Tote. And uh, we'd come down to Melbourne to play on the Don Lane show. We'd wangled uh, our, ourselves an invitation to, to uh, appear as a backing band for The Singing Dog, which was uh, a friend of a friend. Our guitarist, Kimball, his mate, Philip Roop, had this stupid novelty act, which was a singing dog, and he'd play guitar. And the, he, he noticed when he was playing guitar at home, the dog would start howling along whenever he sang. So he turned this into a bit of a, a novelty act, and uh, he got on Don Lane Show a few times to do his silly act, his dog act, and uh, his chook act, really. And uh, to kind of keep it fresh, he decided he's going to have a rock band backing the dog, as you know, because he's, the dog's now got a, a whole band in tow, which was, uh, uh, you know, again a wrinkle on the whole the old formula he'd already established. So we just became the backing band, and, and he he sang an old song called "My Mother's Eyes." The dog's name was Molly, and in fact, there's a movie about the singing dog called Molly the Singing Dog, which is uh, definitely not one of the highlights of Australian cinema in the, in the 1980s. But uh, we used it as an opportunity to come and play our first shows in Melbourne because we were, you know, we were a humble little band in Sydney with no record deal and no much, you know, we were unknown. So it was just a way to get down the Hume Highway with some money in our pocket and uh, have a hotel paid for and so forth. So that's what we did. And we, we booked a show at the Tote Hotel. And uh, as far as I remember, it was pretty good. Dave Faulkner has fond memories of that particular gig at the Tote. Not so fond memories of another show. It was a bit of an unfortunate afternoon because uh, there was a local cricket game between various musicians uh, and, you know, and identities of the air, of the uh, Melbourne, uh, you know, demi-monde. And uh, there was a lot of beer flowing and uh, we were partaking of the beers and not much of the cricket but more of the drinking and we had to do a Sunday session at the Tote that day and uh, we were just three sheets to the window. We were hopeless and it got to the point we couldn't play anything together. I mean, at the time we had James Baker on drums and he definitely liked to drink and, uh, you know, <laughs> Clyde Bramley on bass, he didn't mind a drink either and Brad on guitar was prone to a drink even then. He, he Not so much these days but uh, back then. And even I, you know, I don't drink normally when I'm playing that these days but back then I didn't have the experience to know that that was not good for me to uh, try and sing and, and to be a bit of a loose cannon. So got out there and uh, it, was a, it was an absolute disaster and it got to the point where I finally thought, well, we can't play our own songs. Maybe we can play Louie Louie, which is the ultimate, you know, amateur hour song, and uh, we couldn't even play that. So I just, I left the stage and told people, you know, get your money back. Is you know, sorry about that. We only made it about through about five songs, I think. You know, and as I say, not through any of them. In fact, you know, we couldn't play any songs. So that was one of my earliest memories of playing in Melbourne. It was the Tote and uh, being hopelessly drunk. The Tote has played a key role in the emergence of another great Australian band, The Living End. The thing is that the older guys that were playing in these rockabilly bands who had been around sort of since the 80s, some of them, they'd been around sort of since the first wave of that 
rockabilly kind of resurgence. And we came along in sort of the mid-90s, I suppose, and a lot of them had been playing for a long time and that they kind of had, you know, they had all the gear. They had the proper Fender amps and the proper Gretsch guitars and stuff and we were still kicking around on like crate amps and, you know, PV amps and uh, I had a Samic semi-acoustic guitar and, and you know, they had all the proper belt buckles and shirts and stuff from America and it was really amazing. For, we were only like 15 at the time, you know, when we were back when we were playing the Royal Derby and the tote rock against work kind of things and, and yeah, seeing these guys who had been around the traps a long time, we just looked up to them and we, we were like, that's what we want to do. You know, we want to be able to play a headline show at the tote one day. That's Chris Cheney, lead singer of The Living End. The tote is very significant. I mean, they all have their own place in the history of The Living End. You know, they'll always hold a very special place because the tote, for example, we played, we used to do these rock against work and they'd be on like a Tuesday afternoon for all the bludgers. (laughs) And um, we played at one of those once and we had just gone in and done a recording which ended up being our first EP, which was called Hellbound. And Carl Richter from MDS approached me after we played and said, can I have a word with you for a minute? Sure. So we sat down. He said, look, I work for, um, you know, MDS, Mushroom, blah, blah, blah. Do you have a deal? Do you have a manager? What, what's, you know, what's the deal with you guys? And basically offered then and there, and I said, well, we've just done this recording. It's nine tracks. And he offered then and there to put it out. And so that was the beginning of our relationship with MDS, with Michael Gadinsky, with, you know, Mushroom and all those people. And um, that was a huge moment, of course, because that was the dream was to sort of, you know, not once you get a gig, then you want to be able to kind of pull a crowd and then you want to be able to make a recording and then get on the radio. So that was a real defining step for us. And it was right before we got picked up on that Green Day tour. So it all sort of came to a head in about 95, 96 is when it all started to kind of happen. The ball started to roll. So how did an unknown Melbourne band end up touring the country with one of the biggest bands in the world? Well, it all started when Chris Cheney was having a quiet beer at the Tote. I was sitting at the Tote, actually, and I, was, and I opened Beat Magazine and I saw this ad for Green Day coming out and I was like, oh, wow, you know, because I was quite a big fan at that point. You know, I, I loved the fact that they had this cartoon kind of punk rock thing. I, I was really getting into English punk rock at that point and Green Day for me had had what the great English bands had. I wasn't so much into, like, a lot of the American kind of punk stuff. I loved, you know, The Clash and The Pistols and Sham 69 and all that. So Green Day for me was... Perfect because it was like this supercharged, you know, bubblegums kind of punk, but really catchy songs. And I thought they looked great. And I saw the ad, and I remember saying to Scott, Oh man, you know, we've got to get tickets for this. So we did, we went and got tickets. And then it was like, Wouldn't it be great to get the support slot for that? Not even knowing at that point, we were so naive how it worked, but we were working with Wally. Kempton, he had been booking a few shows for us, and we basically mentioned it to him, I think. He put together a package. I think my mum even helped out because she was doing a lot of the correspondence for the band at that point, like getting stickers and posters and things made. We put this package together, sent it off to Green Day's management. We're a band from Australia. You're coming out here. Can we play with you? A few weeks later, Chris got the call that The Living End were going on the road with Green Day. It blew our minds. We just could not believe that we would be going on tour with them. What do we even do? Okay, the tour starts in Brisbane. Okay, well, how do we get there? We didn't have any money to fly at that point, so we had to get a van, 
put our gear in it and drive up to Brisbane. The first gig was at Festival Hall up there. And it took us a couple of days, I think, to get up there. And we had two crew with us, older guys who were helping. And I'll never forget, we pulled up outside Festival Hall and I could hear them inside sound checking, this enormous cavernous sound. And we opened the doors and there they were on stage playing, you know, really kind of intense. And it was just so loud and I was just could not believe my eyes. We walked in, they basically stopped playing, put their instruments down, walked off stage and came up and introduced themselves and they were so lovely. And then we were off and then it was like, you know, a night there, a couple of nights at Horden Pavilion. Then we got to Melbourne and you had to be playing Festival Hall when I, I was, you know, I'm familiar with the heritage of that place. I had been there seeing shows before and, you know, seen the Beatles footage and all that sort of stuff. And my dad had actually gone there to see Johnny O'Keefe in the 50s and he had seen Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, Little Richard on that 1957 tour that they played. So it was a huge moment. The tickets that we had bought to see them, we ended up giving to our folks. So all our families came along to see us support the big American rock band at this you know, famous Melbourne venue. That is, as they like to say around here, Totes McGroats, a saying apparently inspired by a guy named Kevin McGroats, who was a regular at the Tote back in the late 80s. There's much more mythology surrounding this pub, which was built way back in the 1870s. Maybe after a few pots, you've seen the Tote ghosts? It's said to be neither friendly nor unfriendly, and it's always seen heading up the stairs. One theory says the ghost is a lost patron trying to find the Tote toilets, Another story involves the notorious Melbourne gangster Squeezy Taylor, who frequented the venue back in the 1920s. A century later, the days of illicit gambling at the Tote are long gone, with punters nowadays merely taking a chance on the latest punk or rock band. Everyone's welcome at the Tote, whether you're a punk rocker or John Farnham, who actually popped in one day to see his son's band play. Spicks and Specs star Miff Warhurst loves the tote, though she says it's the only venue in Melbourne where she wishes that smoking was still legal, because at least the cigarette smoke would mask the smell that seems to ooze from the dirty carpet. Yeah, the tote's not exactly a venue you'd call glamorous, but Miff and Melbourne music fans fell in love with the place because the jukebox was always spinning some indie classics in the front bar while out the back was the city's foremost rock and roll chef, Julian Wu, and his famous WooBQ. As the bands blazed away on stage, Julian would be cooking up a storm in the courtyard. Yet, Julian Wu is a legend of the tote. And then there's a man named Bruce. One of the heroes of the Melbourne music scene is a guy called Bruce Mill. And Bruce was the guy who ran the tote. The Tote was the venue that uh, a lot of the punk and uh, alternative music generated out of. It was the venue that the White Stripes played their first Melbourne show in. Bruce is one of the heroes of the industry because at the same time that he was doing the Tote, he also founded All Go Go Records. That was the record label that uh, signed... Spider Bait as an indie band, Magic Dirt as an indie band, uh, the Meanies came through, Orgogo Records. There was an Orgogo record shop 
as well in Melbourne. And Bruce also had a radio show on Triple R. So, you know, somebody like that really got out to all aspects of the music fan back in the day. That's writer and broadcaster Paul Cashmere of Noise 11, introducing us to Bruce Milne, perhaps the lead character in The Tale of the Toad. I've had a long history with The Toad. I mean, not not just from when I bought it, but I've been going to The Toad for 20 years previously when it was, a you know, just as a punter. And it's also, it would have been, because The Toad was the right sort of venue for a go-go band. So, I mean, I think, well, we definitely launched The Scientist's Swampland single there, probably Blood Red River mini album. Some of the Moodus records would have been launched there. And then later on, you know, same sort of thing with bands like God and Magic Dirt and, and Spider Bait. And Spider Bait, in fact, I think did some of their earliest recordings upstairs at the Tote. It was a venue that I'd had a long history with. I guess, you know, it really was my second lounge room. At the start of the 2000s, Bruce Milne became a co-owner of the venue. Then Richie, who worked with me to go-go, said he was going to buy into the tote and did I want to be a silent partner, and that was about 2000. So I bought into the tote with my brother, and then after about six years, uh, Richie wanted a break, so we bought him out, and that's when I really sort of stepped up to the role of sort of running the tote. I had co-ownership of the tote for 10 years, and about eight of those years were really great, and then the, that last period was just really horrible. and just felt like we were being persecuted. And and be honest, by the time I was leaning out the window when the people were all around the tote when I announced it was closing down, you couldn't have paid me enough money to keep on going. I was totally broken. I was so over it. I'd spent two years of trying to deal with the most insane bureaucracy and, and not being able to make any sense. Okay, so it might be time to set the scene a little here. 2010 was an election year in Victoria. The media were banging on about violence after dark and the government, keen to show it was tough on law and order, was enforcing strict liquor licensing regulations which meant that all late-night venues, including music venues, were deemed high risk. The inference was that live music led to violence, which, we should point out, was not backed up by any evidence or statistics. The new laws didn't differentiate between massive nightclubs or small rock and roll venues. They were all seen as one and the same, which meant security guards, CCTV and increased insurance premiums. So you see, this story was about much more than just the tote. The new laws impacted every live music venue across the state. As co-owner of the tote, Bruce Milne was now broke and he'd had enough. What happened is the tote closed because basically we were losing money and my accountant said to me, you know, you're a director of a company, you're losing money, you can't have a business, be a director and lose money and without a plan to get out of it and I had no plan to get out of it. I, and then we're about to go through our slow period, which is the sort of late summer period. And plus I still had liquor licensing sending me letters going, you've got to do this and you've got to do that and I couldn't keep it going. If you're planning a big night out, leave the car at home. If you can, use public transport, catch a taxi, rideshare, or organise a designated driver. Let's all get home safely and keep the band together. On January 14, 2010, Bruce announced that the show was over. Three days later, 
on a quiet Sunday Arvo, a few thousand people gathered outside the tote, closing down Johnson Street and Wellington Street. Like a leader under house arrest, Bruce Milne addressed the crowd from the upstairs window at the tote. I wish my mum could see this. Uh, look, you've heard all the speeches. I don't think the tote can be saved, but I do think live music in, in Melbourne can not only be saved, but can thrive because, because of what's going on. Though he was smiling and cracking gags, Bruce was super stressed. I was just suffering from so many months of some really evil shit that was going down for no reason at all and still hasn't come out. What, why were they trying to close the tote down? Uh, why was someone from liquor licensing coming around every weekend and never able to find anything wrong with it? And what, I don't know, it, it just went on for months and uh, someone wanted the tote to close and they finally managed to do it and then it came back and bit them in the ass. I mean, in the end, it might be that there was alcohol fueled violence happening at huge nightclubs and maybe... Liquor licensing just couldn't shut down those sort of clubs, so they looked for more vulnerable businesses. But I really don't know. At the time, Bruce thought there was just one more thing to do. Put on one hell of a gig to say goodbye to the tote. The venue's booker, Amanda Palmer, put together the lineup in record time. Everyone wanted to be on the bill, including Spiderbait, The Onyas, and Eddie Current Suppression Ring. One of the magic moments was when Bruce went on stage and hugged the late, great Spencer P. Jones. But as Bruce reveals, there was a bit more to the story. And Spencer was going over time and he was doing, uh, it was a Neil Young song, I think it was Down by the River. Um, no, it wasn't, but I've forgotten the name of it. It's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, uh, and we had the tightest possible changeovers because we had bands coming on and changing over all around the building. And Spencer was going overtime and Amanda, the booker, said, you've got to get up there and get him off. And so I went up and he was upstairs in the Cobra Bar, which was, you know, completely packed. And I had to get all the way to the front. And I got right up to Spencer, who was still going at it, um, gave him a great big hug, leant into his ear and said, please get the fuck off stage. And then afterwards, everyone was going, oh, that was so lovely you came and gave Spencer a hug. But it was really just to disguise the fact that I was trying to get him off stage so the next band could get on. On the wall outside the venue... Instead of a list of all the upcoming gigs, there were just a few lines from Persecution Blues, a song by Tim Hemmonsley from The Powder Monkeys and God, who played countless shows at the Tote. Alone, cold, money in my pocket, nowhere to spend it. I've been sued. I've been screwed. Got a chip on my shoulder. I got the Persecution Blues. During the final show... Some of the ashes of Sean Greenway, who'd been Tim Hemmonsley's bandmate in God, were scattered on the tote stage. It was a very emotional night. Punters at the gig, and those listening to the live broadcast on Triple R, PBS and 3CR, were all wondering, what would be the final song at the final show? For Bruce Milne, it had to be the most played song on the tote jukebox and the venue's unofficial anthem, a song by God, sung by Joel Silvershare from the band. Yeah, I was generally crying at that. When the drones, who were a big band in Melbourne at the time, and they just skyrocketed and, you know, I'd, I'd had the, released their record, and they were the headlining band, and they could have just finished the night and been the last band that played at the tote, 
but they came up with the idea of getting Joel up to sing My Power with them. So the, and that was great because that's a record that I, I you know, God record that I released and uh, Drones were a band that I'd released and uh, they're all closely associated with the Tote. Fee worked at the Tote for many years behind the bar. And, uh, yeah, to finish on that note, uh, there was uh, some very, uh, very wet eyes in the room and it was very strange. When Bruce Milne finally made it to bed that night, he thought... That was it. But in many ways, this was just the beginning. The Totes closure was the flashpoint for an entire community of passionate music fans, a community which broadcaster and filmmaker Jonathan Alley recalls was thriving in Melbourne. You know, I think the other thing with Melbourne and music and the whole sort of scene here is that there is actually a tradition of people helping one another out because it's not just good for you know, bands or the, or the people they're helping, it's good for them. You know, what goes around comes around. Uh, there's a sense that if, you know, if I can help this band or these people out, ultimately it's going to help everybody and it might help me. And that can also be a good part of what a community is. You look at something like Bakehouse, the rehearsal studio in, in Richmond that's, that's run by Helen Marco and Quincy McLean. Every town in the world that has music has a rehearsal studio but not every town has a bakehouse. That place is an incubator. It's an incubator of talent, of, again, community. They don't just do music either. There's, you know, they have connections to the, to the culinary and hospitality community, to the visual arts community. They created a book about their space, so there's a kind of literary angle to it too, but they're also advocates. You know, they are some of the most effective, you know, along with now with people like Music Victoria, but the slam movement and the slam rally was born out of that culture around Bakehouse because of what was happening with the tote and all the crazy security laws back in 2010. You know, I think once people see what a community can achieve, they tend to believe in it a little bit more. Quincy and Helen were at that rally outside the tote. At the time, they had no idea what they could do, but they knew they had to do something. Melbourne has a very passionate music community and the idea of the tote going down was just unacceptable and, and it, people were in tears, people were, as they say, crying into their beer and really scratching their heads trying to work out what was going to go on. So uh, we had a lot of people asking us what we were going to do about it, particularly our staff and musicians that rehearsed at Bakehouse. Helen and I both were saying to friends, I don't know, but we're going to fix it somehow. <laughs> we're going to fix it. So uh, that was the beginning of it. This was personal for Quincy. The Tote was where he did his very first gig with his first band, Scrap Museum, in 1982. Quincy knew how important the Tote was to Melbourne music, and he knew that he had to do whatever he could to help save the venue and live music in Victoria. But what? Not long after the Tote closed its doors... Quincy woke in the middle of the night and said to Helen, I've got it, a band going down Swanson Street, reenacting It's a Long Way to the Top. Now, Quincy and Helen have a bit of cred when it comes to ACDC. They called their son Angus George Malcolm Bonnie Scott McLean. So you can see they're good at names. And they also came up with a name for the campaign, SLAM. Save Live Australia's Music. And in the lead-up to the rally, SLAM and another activist group, 
Fair Go for Live Music, mobilised to discuss action plans. They met at the Railway Hotel in North Fitzroy, one of 80 venues that had been forced to reduce or cancel their live gigs. As we mentioned in Episode 2 of Always Live, ACDC made their most famous music video on Swanson Street on February 23, 1976. 34 years later, to the day, the clip would be remade on the city streets with the role of Bon Scott, played by Brian Nankervis. So I was contacted by, you know, our good friends at Bakehouse and I said, and they said, look, do you want to be involved? Absolutely. I remember going to a meeting there and there was, you know, Tony Biggs over there and there was just a really great range of, of Melbourne people. I think Bruce Milne was involved. Maybe Billy Baxter was there. Who else? Mary was there. And, you know, just great people, great sense of care and heart and loyalty to our scene. And it was very, very quickly organised. I'm sure it wasn't that quick, but it felt pretty quick. Suddenly someone had this brilliant idea of putting a band on the back of a truck. Oh, the Rockwiz Orchestra, fantastic. Oh, let's do A Long Way to the Top. And as we came down Swanson Street, the crowds were phenomenal. With Brian on the back of the flatbed truck was the Rockwiz Orchestra, plus a trio of bagpipe players, including two pipers who were part of the original clip with Akadaka. Brian Nankervis reworked the Aussie classic as the crowd sang along. Now, Brian is a master MC, but this was a pretty tough gig. Yeah, it was pretty intimidating and, you know, you always want to be better than you're possibly being, you know, and it was such a remarkable occasion that you want your performance or you want your eloquence to match it. But it was a tough gig because you were coming from the top of Swanson all the way down and it was slow because there were so many people so the truck was moving slowly so you're trying to browse the crowd but then part of you goes okay I don't want to come off like a sort of a a cowboy or I don't want to sound ridiculous or cliched but when it's a 45 minute to an hour journey and the band's just playing the same song it was tough and people, you know, people aren't necessarily listening or they are listening and then you think, right, I've got to get the people involved so let's do a bit of call and response perhaps or, you know, what do we want? And, you, you know, you think, I don't want to fall into cliche and predictability but possibly you do. In fact, I think I watched a little clip of it recently. Something came up and thought, oh, my voice, it's terrible and Well, you said that about a minute ago. Don't say it again. But, you know, no, it was really, it was so exciting and I felt such a, uh, I was so proud that Rockwiz 
was involved, you know, in a very in a sort of small way in a way, but but having the band there and Ash and Lucky and Mark and James, I think it was the sort of yeah, the four piece Rockwiz band was really exciting. What I do remember is for the, for the next three days, I could hardly walk. And at first I thought, what have I done? And then I realised that trying to maintain my balance on a truck as it moved slowly, stopping, starting, speeding up, slowing down, or I just had the, the muscles on my legs were had been uh, completely, <laughs> they were compromised, let's just say. Do you believe in rock and roll? Brian asked the people. This is our music. They can't shut us down. Many people carried placards. Some of the signs included, I tote and I vote. I'm a musician, not a drunk thug. Can't stop the music. No music, no Melbourne. Are we in Sydney? Close the casino, not the tote. Blunderstruck. There was a sense of joy. There wasn't, you know, I was. I remember thinking, oh, there's going to be a sense of, oh, this is it, this is the end of our industry. But it wasn't. It was real defiance. It was belief in Melbourne. It was belief in rock and roll. And then up at the uh, the Parliament House, on the steps of Parliament House, and all these politicians coming out just to sort of show a bit of solidarity who just looked awful and awkward and completely out of place. And then people are speaking, Paul Kelly talking about how the Melbourne pubs were his his education, his uh, his university. Tim Rogers speaking really well. Rick Dempster, who I used to go and see as part of uh, Paul Madigan's band and was a real part of Melbourne's roots scene, playing harmonica and talking. Johnny Von Goes, Helen, of course, Helen and Quincy. Helen, I mean, Helen and Quincy really drove that campaign too. They had incredible support from, it felt like everyone, particularly the public radio stations, but Helen drove that campaign and it was really exciting to be part of it. More than 20,000 people on the streets of Melbourne made the politicians sit up and take notice. You know, the slam rally created a situation where uh, the government pricked up their ears to live music. They had to, you know, because the momentum was so huge and because the slam rally ended up having... Uh, 20,000 plus attendees, the government and the opposition both saw it as an election issue and they started paying attention and they all started thinking about, well, what, what can we do to quell the raging crowd? And so, you know, when we went to the government, they basically said to us, what are your demands? We kind of scratched our heads and said, fix this shit was uh, pretty much what we asked them to do. And I said, no, no, come back to us in the credit to them. They said, you know, what do you see as being what's required to help uh, contemporary music. Quincy and Helen went to see their good friend, Kirsty Rivers, who'd worked at the Songwriters Association, APRA, and then at Creative Victoria. She said, we need uh, a peak body. And, and we, Helen and I both said to her, well, what's a peak body? 
Uh, we had no idea. So apparently uh, every other state had a peak body for live music. I think because Victoria had such an incredibly strong music community and strong community radio and whatever, we felt like, or maybe we just didn't really need it until push came to shove. And so we needed it, had a big problem that we needed to solve. So there'd been talk, various bodies have been trying to get a peak body up. So that was one of the things that went onto the table with the government. You know, we want to seed funding for a peak body. We needed to have the, the whole sector quantified with a social, economic and cultural evaluation. Uh, so they got Deloitte's Access Economics to do a report. And that report was the one that found that live music equates to more ticket sales than AFL home and away matches. That was the real big talking point, the point that you could really hang your hat on. And then there was something called the Agent of Change Principle. It led to some groundbreaking legislation, which was noticed all around the world. But I'm sure you have just one question. What is the Agent of Change Principle? So the Agent of Change Principle effectively is the one where if someone builds a block of apartments, a developer builds a block of apartments next to a pre-existing live music venue, traditionally the live music venue would have to soundproof themselves at, through no fault of their own. Um, so that really needed to be changed and it's not a simple thing. There was barely anywhere in the world that uh, had a, an agent of change principle that related to contemporary music. So that was one that we kicked off. More than a decade on, how does Helen Marku look back at the slam rally? It was such a long period and an exhausting period and it took time out of working on Bakehouse from each other and such a long-term commitment. But, you know, it was 2014 that the 10 demands that we put forth to government got signed off. The most exciting thing and, well, not exciting, let's just say the legacy and the long-lasting thing is that, you know, the Victorian government invested in music. Like that Music Works package of years ago was something like $28 million. It was unprecedented. There was definitely something very special about the Slam Rally. Having been there, you could tell it was being led by music fans. And it was about your everyday working musician, not chart-topping superstars. It was about the joy of seeing live music at your local and the need to protect that. So, in the end, what was the impact of the Slam Rally? Well, I think the government acted and laws were relaxed. I'm being, uh, you know, I'm not entirely, I can't give you chapter and verse on, on what happened, but I know it was a victory and there was a less alarmist approach to noise levels and to probably crowd levels. And then, you know, years later, COVID sort of scuttles it all anyway. But look, it's that age-old problem too. People move into an area because they like the vibe and they like the excitement of live music and then six months later they start campaigning to reduce the hours of, of you know, it's a, it's a complete and utter predictable cliche, but it, it happens. But the great thing is the tote going down started something and it was only the start of something. The tote wasn't the only thing that... And what happened is the music industry in Melbourne got organised in Victoria. And that's what we'd been trying to get things like that happening for years, but it never quite did. 
and there were always various groups, Fair Go for Life Music and things were set up. But it was Quincy and Helen who were organising the slam, really, and what they did. That was just incredible. And then it was all of these people in the music industry who just had to sit at various boring board meetings with EPA and Department of Health and Consumer Affairs and all the parts of the Department of Government to come together to get some sensible laws and changes made and that's what we all benefit now. And it, it's quite remarkable that um, 12 years later, and so much has changed, that music is recognised as being important. And that's so great. The great Michael Gudinski called the Slam Rally one of his proudest days as a Melbourneian. He'd never seen the music industry so united. Quincy McLean remembers a conversation he had at Parliament House. To the extent that when we signed off on the live music accord that we signed with the government, the... Um, Parliamentary secretary pulled me aside and said, so Quincy, how did you manage to fund the rally? How did you get 20,000 per... Who, who put up the money for the rally? And I said, nobody. Like, everybody just gave to the cause. There was no money required. Two months after the rally, it was announced that the tote would return with new owners. The venue reopened on June 10, 2010. And nine months after the march, the state government signed the live music agreement, recognising that Live music makes a significant contribution to the cultural well-being of Victorians and makes a significant economic contribution to Victoria. As Helen Marku points out, the ridiculous assumption that linked live music to violence was broken. Helen has spoken about the Slam Rally at music conferences around the world and Quincy McLean smiled when he saw a group of musicians in Mumbai doing a photo shoot on the beach and behind them was the Slam logo with the message, don't kill live music. But of course, the fight goes on, as more and more apartments are built alongside the old music venues. So we need to live together. And it's still a long work in progress globally. And things have changed again with the pandemic because more gigs are happening outdoors. We need safer airflow and dealing with neighbours will be an issue moving forward. But I think the sparks happened there and our main focus was on protecting artists because remember at Bakehouse, you know, we deal with so many artists. We're almost quarantined from the broader industry. We didn't deal with them much. We dealt with artists face-to-face, maybe managers who would book rehearsals because we were a rehearsal space. And we didn't deal with the big organisations and until the slam rally when, you know, sort of thrust into that. And protecting their livelihoods and their ability to create their art was the most important thing for us. And at the time it was liquor licensing, but moving forward, I think artists need more protection than ever because the pandemic has amplified that everybody, every organisation to do with the arts. Every uh, ancillary business, everyone has been impacted financially. Yep, us gig-goers can never be complacent. As musician and poet Ian Bland said on the steps of Parliament House during the Slam Rally... But it's up to performers, publicans, punters. It's up to us all to ensure those who decree and enforce understand Music's not the disease, it's the cure. Yep, as the sign said, 
I tote and I vote. The people have the power. Next time on Always Live, we're staying in the inner city of Melbourne and heading to the Corner Hotel, a favourite live venue for many musos, including one Mick Jagger, who famously popped in for a not-so-secret show. And Chris Cheney reveals how the Workers' Club inspired a song on his debut solo album. Sometimes just places and, and whatever just kind of pop themselves into the song and it just kind of rolled off, you know. I heard two people talking at the Workers' Club last night. It just seemed to, it seemed to flow. That's coming up on Always Live. This episode of Always Live was written and researched by Luke Wallace, Mikey Carl, and Jeff Jenkins. Audio production by Ben Oakley. Produced by Dave Carter on behalf of Media Heads. If you dug this podcast, feel free to share it, write it a review, and subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast app. Sharing is caring. And if you want info on some awesome live gigs coming soon to Victorian stages, follow Always Live on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or visit the website alwayslive.com.au. I'm Alex Leahy. Catch you at the next gig. Hey guys, it's Matilda Pearl. I couldn't do what I do without my band by my side, so don't do life without your mates by yours. Take care on the roads this summer, look out for each other, and most importantly, let's keep the band together.